0: We've been looking at the parables of Jesus from Matthew's Gospel, and this morning we're going to begin looking at the parables from Luke's Gospel. In our text from Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus in the familiar situation of attending a meal. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, we're told, proclaiming the feast of the kingdom. But this is a dinner party which is going to get more than a little bit uncomfortable For the host. We're going to look at this text under four headings. The dinner party in verse 36 through 39. Then the parable. The parable itself in verses 40 through 43. Then the interpretation. Which is in verses 44 through 47. And finally, the absolution. Or if you will, the assurance of pardon. The absolution which is in verses 48 through 50. So it's the dinner party, the parable, the interpretation, and then the absolution. So first then, the dinner party. The text begins in verse 36. Luke tells us one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Jesus gets lots of dinner invitations because of the way he handles people. And Luke is at great pains to tell us that the dinner took place in the home of a Pharisee. He mentions it three times in the first two verses. And we're told that Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, some Pharisees were Jesus's bitter enemies, but some were his friends and followers. We're not quite sure about this guy yet. We do know he invited Jesus for dinner. Meals in this culture were eaten differently than they are in ours. Uh, They were eaten with the food in the center, and the guests would be on couches, laying on their sides, usually on their left elbow, and eating with their right hand and their feet tucked behind them. Sounds like a Palestinian diet technique to me, but that's how they did the meals. In addition, contrary to Western culture, these meals would often be semi-public open affairs and a variety of passerbys would come in and they'd stand behind the guests. The guests are lying on couches, the food's in the middle, and the doors would be open. People would come in and they'd stand along the walls and listen to the conversation. They're communal public meals at least in many cases. And it's likely in this case that Jesus has already given or is about to give a sermon and that there would be some open and lively discussion of his teaching. So that's the setting. And next, Luke introduces a woman in attendance at the meal. Now, of course, we all know that in this culture, women were inferior to men. They were deprived of legal standing. They were often secluded from men. And this is not just a woman. She's called a woman of the city or the town, a sinner. Almost certainly a prostitute. And she had learned that Jesus was reclining at table. In the Pharisee's house. Now, guests are welcome. But while guests are welcome, this woman's coming because of who she was, because of her public reputation. Her coming to the meal took some courage. She had obviously heard Jesus preach before, and it's clear from the text that she's responded in faith to his message. And her appearance at the meal creates an immediate crisis for the host. The Pharisees were excessively concerned about ritual purity at meals. It's this concern that causes Luke to tell us three times in two verses, the meal was at a Pharisee's house, the meal was at a Pharisee's house, the meal was at a Pharisee's house. The The Pharisees, like many moderns, I suppose, don't like Jesus dragging all these undesirables into their meetings. And this is why the church has to guard itself against becoming, or at least projecting itself, as a society of nice, clean, good, decent people. You join the Rotary Club if you want that. The scholar, prolific writer and pastor Eugene Peterson, he's put it this way. He says, churches are not Victorian parlors, where everything is always picked up and ready for guests. They're messy family rooms. Entering a person's house, he says unexpectedly, we're sometimes met with a barrage of apologies. Things are out of order, to be sure, but that's what happens when churches are lived in. They are not showrooms. He continues, they're living rooms and the persons living in the rooms are sinners. That means there's going to be clothes scattered about and handprints on the woodwork and mud on the carpet. For as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous to repentance, and there's no indication that he's changed his policy, churches are going to be, Peterson says, embarrassing to the fastidious and an affront to the upright. We tend to think the exact opposite. They're going to be embarrassing to the really bad people and a source of pride to the fastidious and the upright. It's the opposite. So, a prostitute, a prostitute shows up at the Pharisees' dinner party. And at the end of verse 37, we're told the woman brought an alabaster jar of costly perfume. So she came prepared. She knew what she was going to do. She knew already who Jesus was, almost surely. And you get this dramatic scene. And it's a moving scene. uh, And it could have only provoked horror from the dinner guests. In verse 38. Luke chapter 7, verse 38, she's standing behind Jesus where she would have easy access to his feet. Remember, he's lying down. She begins weeping. And the text says she began to wet his his feet with her tears. Probably unintentionally at first. And surely the context makes it clear that these are tears of repentance. Repentance. These are tears of joy. And then also spontaneously and unselfconscious of the scandal that she's causing in the midst of the dinner, she lets her hair down and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, for a woman in this setting here, to let her hair down, to uncover her head, would be considered shameful... And seductive. No self-respecting woman would do it. It was even considered grounds for divorce by some of the rabbis. It's an open public scandal. There's a famous story from this period of a Jewish mother who had seven sons, all of whom had become high priests. And the reason given For the righteousness of her sons in the story was, the rafters of her house had never seen the hair on her head unloosed. So this is a scene which would unquestionably appear sensual to the host and to his guests. There are deep religious and cultural taboos being broken here. To get the force of this. I remember uh, a New Testament professor of mine, when he was taking us through the Gospels, he stopped on this parable and, and, and made some comments on it. And he said, to get the force of it, you'd have to imagine a not appropriately dressed modern pop figure. You know, coming into a dinner party at your house and doing something like this. And even then, he says, the taboos being broken there are not the same. They're not as sacred as the taboos being broken here. So the guests are sitting there in shock at this point. Probably from their perspective, a holy religious shock. And so the drama continues with her kissing Jesus' feet. And verse 45 tells us she Repeatedly kissed them. From the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. And then she anoints the Lord's feet with her perfumed oil. Again, acting with foresight here, premeditation. But if you're a Pharisee sitting here, this is another huge scandal. This would almost certainly be oil earned in and used for her profession as a woman in the town. And the Pharisee would know. He would know from Deuteronomy 23, 18, that offerings from prostitutes are not to be accepted in the house of God. The Pharisees always know the law. And in the midst of this, Jesus lies there on the floor or on a low couch, calmly. There he is in his always present transcendent serenity. Jesus is never ruffled. And not only his transcendent serenity, his transcendent purity. He knows that this is not, in fact, a sexually charged situation. He's probably the only one in the room who knows this at this point. The woman's tears forbid it to be seen that way. Jesus knows this is an act of devotion and humility. This woman is publicly modeling the humbling Washing a feat that the Lord himself is soon going to engage in with his own disciples. And so in verse 39, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Here you can see something of the motives of the host He thought, you know, Jesus might be a prophet. So why don't we invite him over for dinner? Honey, why don't we have Jesus over for dinner? I think he might be a prophet. And we can ask him some questions. Should be rather harmless. Now he knows he can't possibly be a prophet. Why can't he be a prophet? The Torah forbids it. He obviously doesn't know the purity laws. He's violating Deuteronomy 23. He's allowing a prostitute to touch him. (laughs) He reflects the... Now, again, it's hard for us maybe to feel this scandal because we've lived 2,000 years on the other side of Jesus' ministry. But this is the common, pervasive, cultural attitude toward prostitutes. A a writing from the 2nd century B.C. puts it bluntly. A prostitute is to be regarded as spittle. One of the many many revolutionary things about Jesus is his radical break with the glosses in his religious culture, with the religious and cultural taboos that people thought were holy, but weren't. And of course, it's not simply on his approach to sinners, but especially with respect to women who were sinners. And we see that no more clearly than here. So that's the dinner party. It's a very uncomfortable party right now. Second point is the parable proper. So in verse 40, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Which means Jesus is setting him up. Um, I mean, it's not like he's just reporting a fact. And so Simon says, "Tell, tell me, teacher, And you get this very short, straightforward parable. A certain money lender lender has two debtors. One owes 500 denarii, the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he cancels the debts of both. And then Jesus ends with a question. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon the Pharisee gives a rather cavalier answer. He says, I suppose, I suppose, um, the one who had the bigger debt canceled. He still doesn't get it. So Jesus tells Simon, you've judged correctly. And that brings us to the third point, which is the interpretation. So in verse 44, Jesus asks a crucial question and he does it in a crucial way. He turns to the woman who's apparently still behind him at his feet. The text says he turns to her and he says to Simon. Notice that. He's talking to Simon with his back to him. It's a very dramatic act by Jesus. He turns to the woman, but he's addressing Simon now over his shoulder. Looking at her, addressing Simon, he says, do you see this woman? The key word here is this. This. Do you see this woman? In many ways, this parable is about how we see people. Do you see this woman? Not her reputation, Simon. Not the group she belongs to you. Do you see this particular actual flesh and blood woman? Not are you looking at her, Simon, but do you see her? This is an enormously important move by Jesus, given all the more dramatic effect by the fact that he's calling Simon to see and he's not looking at Simon. But we often do the same thing Simon does. We see people as Baptists or Arminians or Democrats or unbelievers or whatever. And then we break the world into the people with the white hats and the black hats and the good guys and the bad guys. And to some extent, this is inevitable. Don't get me wrong. To some extent, it's necessary. But it can prevent us from seeing actual people. So we see them and we define them by their group. But that blinds us to dealing with with the complexities and the concern and the condition of the actual human being standing in front of us. What matters, Simon, is not your theology of prostitutes, but this repentant prostitute in front of you. Do you see this woman? Jesus saw the image of God in need of good news, Simon and his ilk saw only uncleanness. And it's not like they didn't have scriptures they could evoke. They were the good guys, the Pharisees, in the sense of they were the upholders of the law. Jesus shows us that it's not enough to have a grasp of a set of texts. One has to know how those texts apply in the situation at hand. And more importantly, the Pharisee problem is a problem of disproportion. They don't have first things first, second things second, and third things third. They have 17th things first. Then, in a breach of good dinner etiquette, Jesus confronts his host. This is unheard of in the Middle East. You never confront the one providing the hospitality, even if it's considered to be deficient, gravely deficient. You just don't do this. It's not acceptable protocol. This is another thing about Jesus. He cares more about the truth than the social niceties of the situation, no matter how entrenched they are, no matter how honorable they might be. He cares, in fact, about Simon. Enough to be rude, what would appear to be rude to Simon in the eyes of his guests. And so he he says to Simon, I came into your house. You gave me no water for my feet. He should have seen to it that he had water to wash Jesus' feet or that a servant had taken care of it. Jesus is not asking for any special privilege here. This is just what you do if someone comes over to your house in the Middle East. You make sure their feet are cleaned. He says, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She's done, Simon, what you failed to do. Of course, this means that Jesus' feet were dirty when she washed them. She couldn't stand to see the one who had brought her the gospel treated with contempt and Simon treated Jesus with contempt when he, from the moment he entered the house. And this is by now a familiar theme in the parables. The marginalized, the outcast, the unclean, they do what the religious leaders fail to do. Now, now think about this. this it, it is not simply that the marginalized are in and embraced by the love of Jesus. That's really not the the, the bite in a lot of these parables. It's, It's not simply that we need to learn to accept prostitutes who repent. Jesus pushes these parables much further than that. He says, they are doing what you are failing to do. Now, at this point, it's your dinner party, right? You're Simon. You're humiliated. Look, it is hardly imaginable in his world that the actions of this woman could be turned against him in public in his own house at a dinner party to which he invited this man. Not only are you humiliated, you're probably angry. But Jesus isn't finished. He's not going to get invited back. He knows that at this point. He says in verse 45, you did not give me a kiss. A matter of common Middle Eastern courtesy. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Simon should have kissed him on the cheek. Or the custom was, if he was a rabbi, you might kiss his hand. But she doesn't deign to do either one. She kisses his feet repeatedly, cleansed only with her tears. Jesus says, you didn't put oil on my head. The regular cheap olive oil, which was always used for the head of any guest. I didn't get any of that. That was denied to Jesus. But she poured perfume on my feet. She doesn't presume to anoint his head. But again, it's clear that her love for Jesus is such that she can't stand to see him abused by his host. And so Jesus brings the discussion in verse 46 back home. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins... Notice, Jesus doesn't gloss over the realities of her life. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And now, he's moved beyond the realm of a prophet. He's claiming divine authority. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, he says, for she loved much. One could think that love was the reason her sins are forgiven, but it's clear that love is the sign, not the cause of her forgiveness. This could be translated, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, therefore she loved much. This woman has clearly responded to Jesus before this dinner. In addition, if you notice in the text, the next phrase, but he who has been forgiven little loves little, There we see that love follows forgiveness. And that last phrase is clearly a rebuke to Simon, isn't it? He thinks he has little need of forgiveness. And the way that works itself out in his life is he loves little. And the parable's open-ended here. It's, It's clearly trying to leave this impression that maybe Simon maybe the Simons of the world are not such little sinners after all. So Jesus, you know, he is trashing all the etiquette rules. That's true. But he does love Simon as well as this woman. He accepted Simon's invitation. He's taking great pains to teach Simon the gospel of forgiveness. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Simon, your sin's may not be as great or as public as this woman's, but they are still great. They may even be greater, Simon, because you can't see them. I mean, she know, that's the Pharisee problem, right? It's not that they wouldn't confess that they are sinners. These people, these people don't even need to look at the bulletin for the confession of sins. They can do it. They can confess their sins. They just don't actually live as if they're sinners. Forgiven by the mercy of God. And so Jesus is, is is in his love trying to get Simon to see the greatness and the magnitude of his sins. If you knew the depth of my forgiveness like this woman does, you would not have treated me the way you treated me when I walked in the door. Your love would not be so cold and detached and clinical. Finally, the absolution. In verse 48, Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, those at the table wonder, who can forgive sins? Jesus ignores all their questions. He's made his point. And and the point is really about identity. Simon's identity. Who is Simon? This woman's identity, and especially Jesus' identity, Simon's wrong on all three counts. But the guests are beginning to to figure it out. Jesus pronounces forgiveness on the woman. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's Jesus' full assurance of pardon. Her faith is the instrument which saves her. And from that faith flows the love which we saw enacted. So I think the text is very clear in its application to us. We have to see that we've been forgiven much. And if our love for the Lord is tepid or cold, it's surely because we forget this. Because we have some sort of scale that says, my sins are not as big as this woman's sins. But the scale needs to be retooled. It needs to be, retu- all of us are born as Simons. And, and there's something about the institutional church which creates Simons in mass. And we naturally revert to this sort of complacent, calculating, comparison, self-righteousness. Not only do you do that, Then we categorize people without sufficient regard for the gospel of the grace of God. We naturally then set up our own purity laws, don't we? Everybody's got their own little purity laws. Jesus is overthrowing the whole order of ritual purity. Now, we may not have temple purity laws, you know, Torah purity laws, but we've got things that to us are matters of conscience, they're matters of societal norms, they're matters of decorum, they're matters of custom, they're matters of tradition, but we haven't brought those things under the criticism of the gospel. That's why we're, we're offended when someone offends our conscience or our tradition or our set of decorum or our little set of rules. We do just what Simon does. We assume our rules have all the force of the law of God. Jesus says this. Here's purity. It consists in throwing yourself in love at his feet. In tears of repentance. Here's the big picture. Pharisees, Simons, we always miss the big picture. The big picture in this is that it is not the woman's defilement which is contagious. It is Jesus' mercy and holiness which are contagious. Right? And, and the Simons of the world have an amazing ability to miss the monumental, cataclysmic, epochal event of Jesus of Nazareth standing in the room. After all, we know what Deuteronomy 23 says about prostitutes. It is not the woman's uncleanness which is contagious. It is Jesus' mercy and holiness which is contagious. In the Old Covenant, unclean things, if you touched them, they defiled you if you were clean. In the Kingdom... Jesus comes and he cleans the defiled. And that reversal is at the heart of the gospel and Simon is clueless about this because he's attending to the dinner and all the regulations that are floating around in his little petty head. This is the great reversal. The holiness of God and the mercy of God and the love of God manifested in Jesus Christ cleans defilement away. And to do that, it has to touch it and get into it. So let us love the Lord as this woman, this woman, has so graphically taught us. For like her, we too have been forgiven much. Amen. Amen.